to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which is such a sacred time for the church. I want to continue this morning in our study of 2 Peter. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, the second part of verse 10 through the first part of verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 2, the second part of verse 10 to the first part of verse 13. Peter continues his description of false teachers, and this is what he says. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And we'll stop there. Our first point this morning is false teachers. Peter continues to describe the false teachers of his day with harsh, graphic language. And as I shared with you last week, why is it that the New Testament writers, and really when we consider the false prophets of the Old Testament the same thing, why is it that the writers of Scripture use such harsh language to describe these men and women? Why this graphic condemnation of false teachers? We saw last week that the Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, if anyone brings to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you. Let him be accursed. Let him be under the curse of God. Let him be anathema. Let him be condemned to hell forever. And we realize that the reason they use such harsh language is because false teachers pervert, distort, and replace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They attack the integrity of the word of God they attack the person and work of Jesus Christ. They attack the very gospel itself. And so heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's why they are so harsh with these false teachers. Right now, our country, this weekend, this holiday weekend, because of what happened in Orlando, because of what happened in Istanbul and what happened in Bangladesh. In many parts of our country, we are on high terror alert. Well, let me say to you this morning, the church should always be on high alert for false teachers because they attack the very heart and soul of our salvation. False teaching and false teachers will be a constant threat and danger to the church until Jesus returns. And so we must always be on the alert 
for false teaching and for false teachers. We must not. We must not allow them to shake our confidence in God and in his holy word. And as I have shared with you a couple of times now, that is the very heartbeat of false teachers. They want to sow seeds of doubt in your mind and in your heart. Even though you may have grown up in a conservative, evangelical, Bible-teaching church, they want you in the deepest parts of your soul to begin to wonder, can I really trust the Word of God? Can I really trust the Bible? After all, it was, it's just a compilation of writings of men do I really know that Jesus is God? Do I really know? I mean, do we know for sure that he actually rose from the dead? Is there a real hell? Would a loving God really send people, condemn people to torment in hell forever? Would he really? Would a loving God really do that? And little by little, false teachers want to sow doubt and discord in your heart and in the church. Last week we saw that Peter provides his readers and us with three examples from the Old Testament of how God rescues the godly and punishes the unrighteous. We looked at those three examples. Let me go over them with you very, very briefly this morning. First, Peter says God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Satan rebelled against God when he was a holy angel. And so he was removed from God's presence and a whole host of angels fell with him becoming fallen angels or demons. And Peter tells us that they have been cast, some of them have been cast into hell, into chains of gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Others of them have been allowed to roam free, but will eventually be judged and sentenced to the lake of fire that is described in the book of Revelation. And Peter is saying to all the false teachers, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, he will not spare you. The second example that he gave is that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and his family when the world went wild with wickedness, God destroyed the entire world, every living person, man, woman, and child, with a great flood that encompassed the earth, sparing only eight people, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. And the false teachers are to know if God did not spare the ancient world, he will not spare you. And we are to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, know this, that God always protects and preserves the righteous. Even in the times of his severest judgment, he will guard us, he will protect us. The third example that he gave is that God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescued righteous Lot. Peter tells us that 
Sodom and Gomorrah have been reduced to ashes, condemned to extinction, and we know to this day we still don't know exactly where the great cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were because they were so thoroughly destroyed. Now, we know approximately where they were because prior to their destruction, they were both significant cities in the ancient world. But even in the midst of that, God rescued righteous Lot. And as we looked at last week, we don't always think of Lot as a righteous man. He was far from perfect. But Peter tells us three times in this chapter that Lot was a righteous man. And, that, and we, this is the only place we learn this in this chapter, that Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the ungodliness and wickedness that he saw around him. And so God spares Lot and his daughters. Of course, his wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed the instruction of the angels. And the false teachers are to know this. If God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, he will not spare you. But let us as God's children know that if God rescued Lot and his daughters, he certainly will rescue us as well. And we are to take great encouragement in that, no matter what happens around us. And then the key point of last week's message was verse 9. God knows how to rescue the godly and to punish the unrighteous. And it doesn't just mean, well, God knows how to do it. It means God has been doing it. God has done it. He is doing it and will continue to do it. God knows. The living God, the transcendent, majestic God of heaven and earth knows how to rescue the godly and to punish the unrighteous. Well, our second point this morning is unrestrained wickedness. I want us to listen very carefully to the Holy Spirit-inspired description of those who knowingly choose to oppose the clear teaching of Scripture and aggressively seek to persuade others. I want us to listen very carefully to what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write about these false teachers. In verses 10 and 11, it says, Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Bold and willful. A paraphrase of that would be, they are unbelievably arrogant and full of themselves. These false teachers are bold and willfully do whatever they want. And it says they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. The term glorious ones is a very important phrase here, but very difficult to interpret. It is believed to be a reference to Satan and his fallen angels. Now, why are they called glorious ones? We're not exactly sure, except that they have retained some semblance of their glory, just like fallen men and women retain some semblance of the image of God in which they were created. But we know he's not referring 
to good angels because in verse 11 he says, whereas angels, good angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, we do not know what this false teaching was. Peter doesn't tell us how they were blaspheming the glorious ones. But the Baker New Testament commentary series on 2 Peter offers what I think is a plausible possibility of what they may have been saying. They may have been saying, even like false teachers today, can any rational, intelligent, well-educated person really believe there's a devil? I mean, come on. Do you really believe there is an actual person named Satan, named Lucifer? And come on. What rational, intelligent, well-educated person would actually believe there are demons? Isn't that the stuff of mythology and legends? And so somehow, they were blaspheming. Blaspheming the glorious ones. And it says, whereas angels... The good angels, though greater in might and power, greater in might and power than the false teachers and the fallen angels, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. The good angels, the holy angels, do not dare to pronounce judgment even on the fallen angels. But they leave that judgment entirely to God. That is His realm. That is what God does. And so they step back from ever pronouncing a blasphemous judgment, even against Satan and his demons. So even good angels will not accuse the fallen angels in the presence of the Lord. There's an old saying that you may be familiar with. It says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That's exactly what it's saying in verses 10 and 11. These fools rush in where even angels fear to tread. In Jude, the little book of Jude, verse 9, it says this, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Isn't that interesting? Not even the archangel Michael would, presu would presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah has a vision. He has a vision of the high priest named Joshua. And Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is at his side accusing Joshua the high priest. And in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So these false teachers were so bold and willful, so arrogant, that they were blaspheming in a way that not even the holy angels would dare to do. In verse 12, it says this, But these, like irrational animals, 
creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Wow. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Peter says that these men and women have become like wild animals. They act on their unrestrained sinful passions and desires. Whatever their sinful instinct tells them to say and do, that is what they say and do. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. They talk about things they really don't even have knowledge about. I once read, and perhaps you've read something like this, it was a book on apologetics, and that when people, the vast majority of people, not every single one, but the vast majority of those who criticize the Bible, who say it's just the writings of men, or say it is full of contradictions, or full of inconsistencies, or what about this particular verse, or that particular scene? They said, do you realize that the vast majority of people who say those things have never actually read the Bible. A question to ask them is, you are criticizing a book? Let me ask you, how many times have you read through this now? I'm assuming you must have read through it many times to make these kinds of accusations. Most of the time they've just heard it from other people or know about a particular passage or seen in the Bible. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. In the very far last part of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13, it says, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Peter repeats and repeats, know this, they will be destroyed. They will be judged and they will be destroyed back in verse 1 of this same chapter at the very end, it says, bringing, up, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Second sentence of verse 3 says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their, excuse me, and their destruction is not asleep. In verse 9, which we looked at last week, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter does not mince words. He does not hold back in his graphic denunciation of these false teachers. But as we go to communion this morning, I want to ask a question. A question that I wrestle with and think about. How do men and women become so depraved that they openly and defiantly rebel against their creator and become like wild animals. How is that? How is it that people who are created in the image of God, people like us, how does it happen? How do they become so depraved that they blaspheme God and they blaspheme his word 
with no hesitation whatsoever. And I want to challenge all of us this morning that if it were not for God and his word, we may be just like them. I just want you to think about that. The reason they become like that is because they're like me. And they're like you. I want us to think this morning that apart from the influence of the Word of God, and apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit, our capacity for evil is beyond imagination. If it were not for the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we have an unimaginable capacity for evil. I do. And so do you. And as we go to communion, I want us to think how desperately we need Christ every minute of every day. Back in 2011, I did a short sermon series that I titled The Cross of Christ and the War Within. And I said this, it's not original with me by any means. The greatest enemy you will ever face in your Christian life is you. The greatest enemy you will ever face in your Christian life is you. Folks, your greatest enemy is not Satan. Your greatest enemy is not ISIS. Your greatest enemy is not this culture. Your greatest enemy is you. When you see a godly man or a godly woman, know this, that their life has been molded in the fiery furnace of warfare with sin, fought mainly in their own souls. You know how men and women become godly? By engaging in the fiery furnace of warfare with sin, fought primarily within their own souls. The normal Christian life is a life of making war on the sins within me. The normal Christian life is a life of making war on the sins within me. I want you to know this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saved you from sin and from the judgment to come, but the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you every day from you. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves you every day from you. Oh, I want you to know there is great freedom in Christ. Unbelievable freedom in Christ. But I also want you to know there is unimaginable slavery apart from Christ. A wonderful prayer for us to pray every day is God save me from me. God save me from me. If it were not for the restraining influence of God and his word, I could be just like those false teachers. If it were not for the restraining influence of God and his word, 
I could very well be one of those wild animals blaspheming God and everything that he stands for. As you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, I want every one of us to acknowledge our desperate need for Christ. Not just in salvation, but every moment of every day. At this time, we will share the Lord's Supper together.